Good evening. This is the Wine of Life podcast. I'm Wes, and tonight we're going to be talking about four washings or four cleansings uh, with regards to uh, the life of sanctification for the Christian. And uh, this is uh, our progress in our spiritual life, our spiritual maturity until our glorification in our new body. So we're going to start right off. There are four total ones that I find that I'd like to highlight in the New Testament. And uh, number one, of course, is going to be baptism. Now, again, um, baptism is not salvific. It is not, that is, it's not causative of salvation. It is the first uh, step, the first commandment that Christ gives to those who have faith in him to take with regards to our sanctification to be conformed unto his death. It is the forgiveness of those past sins. So we're going to look in uh, Romans 6. Uh, we're going to look at several verses, actually. But um, this is what Paul says about it in Romans 6. Uh, we'll go 1 through 6. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Then he's speaking to Christians, people who are now saved. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin any longer, or live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should also walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So it is the uh, removal, the death of what that old man is supposed to be. Uh, but this is why we don't consider it to be regenerative. We look at, uh, and I know there are many uh, instances in the book of Acts, but I'd like to pick out in particular Paul. This is what it says after his, um, his vision. In verse 17 of Acts chapter 9, it says, And Ananias went his way and entered in the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou might receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. He was baptized after the his sight came back. All right, now what then Ananias, or Paul relates what Ananias said with regards to his uh, baptism. We're going to go to, where are we going to go to? We're going to go to Acts 16. That's what we're going to try to do, but I think we'd rather go to Acts 22. 16, I believe it is. Yes. Um, this is what Paul is saying. He's recounting his testimony again. He says, For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. This is what Ananias is saying to Paul. He says, And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, remember when we're saved, we ask for forgiveness, uh, but we don't ask for forgiveness for those specific sins like we would as Christians later on in our Christian life. What baptism then does is the washing away of the not the nature of our sins, but the past sins 
that we have already committed. So we are starting a process of being conformed to his death. So we're buried into his death. That doesn't mean you're automatically into his death and then everything you've ever done is all washed away and it has nothing to do with anything. But it is the destruction of the past. And so I'm going to read from Colossians and then I'm going to give you the types that Paul gives with regards to baptism being a picture, uh, pictures or types in the Old Testament that he uh, compares to what baptism is now and how they are the destruction of the past. So we're going to look at the first step of sanctification is this destructive aspect. And I'm going to read from Colossians 2. Um, it says, For in him, speaking of Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. So we see that baptism is that picture of the operation of God through faith. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So again, it, there's this picture of death and being raised again unto new life. And this is the beginning of our sanctification. But this is what Paul says in Philippians regarding being conformed unto his death uh, with regards to his own ministry. He says, um, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things uh, but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by many any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark of the high prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's in Philippians 3, uh, 8 through 14. So baptism is not some uh, complete deal where that is some sort of justifying aspect of your faith. It is the beginning of the sanctification process where you begin to be conformed into the death of Christ. So the very first washing is your baptism. And now these are the three types that Paul gives so that we can understand it a bit better. Um, and I think these are really interesting, but this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, 1 and 2. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the passing through the, um, the Red Sea when it parted is here called by Paul the baptism of Moses. But what did that do? Was that the redeeming part of their journey? Well, no, the, the killing of the Lamb is what redeemed them. The putting the blood on the doorpost is what redeemed them and kept the angel of death away. And ultimately their faith is the thing that was supposed to redeem them, their faith in that blood, their faith in the cloud, the, the angel of the Lord who was in the cloud and in the pillar uh, in the fire by night. 
the one who they were supposed to be following. Uh, their faith in him was supposed to be the thing that saved them. Of course, some of them uh, died anyways uh, because of unbelief, because they didn't believe. But what really did the baptism of Moses accomplish? What it did was it killed their enemies. It killed their overseers. So if we go to Exodus 14, uh, we read uh, from 26 to 30, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again unto the Egyptians upon their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand in the sea, and the sea returned his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the host of Pharaoh that came unto the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry, dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. So what do the waters do here? The waters are a destructive force, and that's how I want you to sort of see what baptism is in the first part of our sanctification. Baptism is destructive. That's what it's supposed to be. So we have the first type is Moses' baptism. It is destroying their old masters. So it's destructive of the past. The second one we get from what I just read you in Colossians 2, which is circumcision. And in Colossians uh, 2, let me get here. I'm right here. It says, uh, And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what circumcision was, was the cleansing and the cutting away of the flesh from the life-giving organ. So, in males, you have the life-giving organ, that puts forth the seed. And anyone who was born of Abraham, who was the chosen seed, uh, had to then be circumcised on the eighth day. And that would be a sign that they had of the covenant. Now, this is one of the reasons why we reject infant baptism, because to receive uh, circumcision, you had to be born from Abraham, or there were, there were proselytized, but um, people who were proselytized. But uh, there were people who were born from Abraham on the eighth day, they had to be. Uh, circumcised. Now, if we are being, or if we are going to receive the circumcision without hands, the spiritual circumcision, that means you must not be born physically, but you must be born from above in order to receive the spiritual circumcision. This is why we reject uh, infant baptism within uh, the Baptist Church because the Bible clearly teaches that baptism, that circumcision, is a type of baptism. Circumcision, of course, is not your birth, um, so it is not where you're born again. It is supposed to be a sign of the covenant you had and the cutting away of the flesh there because the cutting away of our flesh, now that we all, in 1 John uh, 3, 9, it says, we all have the seed of God within us. So all of us who are saved, men or women, uh, we are all now life-giving organs. Our witness is before the world and the seed of God is within us and, and we can share that with other people by the sharing of the gospel because we are ambassadors for God according to Second uh, Corinthians 5, 17-21 and we are pleading with the world to be reconciled with God. Uh, so therefore there is a certain way we are supposed to live. We are supposed to be sanctified, become spiritually mature, be conformable unto the death of Christ like Paul says in Philippians 3. 
So circumcision is the cutting away of that. And this was uh, this was foretold, of course, by Moses in Deuteronomy 10. I'm going to try and get there as quick as I can. Uh, yes, in Deuteronomy 10 here, I'll read... Um, what do we want to read? We'll read 12 and on. It says, Now Israel, what does the Lord require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to love him and serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul? So now you see, he's not speaking to people who've never known him. He's not speaking to people who will know him in the future. He's speaking to people who already believe in him, who already are supposed to know him, who are supposed to be um, that early part of the church, the same way that... Um, Israel is called the nation of priests. Peter calls us that in 1 Peter 2.9. So we see again the idea of circumcision and baptism being parallel here, um, that Christians are the ones who are baptized. You do not get baptized to be saved. You get baptized because you already have been saved. Israel were supposed to be uh, circumcised because they were born into the covenant. So it says, "...to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good." Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord thy God, the earth also with all that is therein. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed. Again, we're going to seed again. Even uh, you above all people as it is this day. And because he's chosen the seed, listen to what he says next. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be nor stiff-necked. Right? Because you're chosen, because the seed is within you, you must be a witness to the fact that you are mine. That is what God is trying to say here. And that is what baptism is. Um, not just what it does, right? The, the idea of the destruction of the, of the sins of the past. It is also the fact that you are saying that I belong to God. I am God's. You are not I am God's. I belong to God. What I mean. If you wrote that down, it would make more sense to say it. But circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regards not person nor reward. He does execute judgment of the fatherless and widow, loves the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. So the uh, circumcision of the heart is a way that we are supposed to live and worship. That's what is outlined here in Deuteronomy 10. And that is what the requirement is of those who have been saved. We are commanded to be baptized in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, and in all the other Gospels as well. So we have those two types, and both of them are destructive. It's the destruction of those who are over you, your masters. It is the destruction of the flesh uh, away from you in order to be the proper witness for Christ that you're called to be. The third one is also quite destructive. This is probably the most famous one. When we go to 1 Peter 3, uh, the type of baptism here used is uh, Noah's flood. Um, it says this, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient. When once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure uh, whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now many people point to that and say, baptism is the thing that saves you. It is the mechanism by which God saves you. But we find something different when we read uh, Hebrews 11. This is what it says about Noah in Hebrews 11:7. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God, of the things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. It was the faith of Noah that saved his family, and of course it was the ark itself that was salvation for them, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So in what sense were they saved then by water, as the Scriptures also says in First Peter? Well, they were saved in that the old world itself was to be condemned, and it was condemned by water. Again, the water is a destructive force. Baptism is a destructive force. It destroyed the old world. It completely condemned it and did away with it. And that is what baptism does, right? So a lot of times we, we preach and we teach about what baptism is, but we don't preach what baptism does. It is the destruction of the past life you once had. It is not the uh, means by which you receive salvation or the Holy Spirit, but it is the spiritual operation of God, of the cutting away of the old man, uh, of circumcision, as it says in Colossians 2, 10 through 12. So they were saved in that the, the water destroyed the old world that was to be condemned. But what was the actual salvation for them? The means of their salvation was the faith. Uh, the faith and the fact that they were then in the ark, the ark being a picture of Christ, the flood waters being the picture of judgment. So baptism, the beginning of sanctification, is judgment of what once was, of what the old man was. So now we move on to number two. So the first cleansing, the first washing is supposed to be baptism. That is what Christ commands of us. The second one we find in Ephesians 5. And this is not for merely the individual. This is for the whole of the church. It says this in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So the second washing is a corporate washing that we receive when we meet together and hear the preaching of the word. And so you see the connection of how the particulars and the universal, the individuals and the church as a group, uh, are relevant to your sanctification, because how do we get baptized? We get baptized by the ordained members of a church. We don't just go to the hardware store and ask some guy to dip us in water. We go to the people who share the gospel with us. We go to those who have authority within the church. So the idea of sacrament and word are together here in our sanctifications. So the sanctification for the individual and the sanctification corporately is also found within the church. And that, is, that doesn't mean that you, you can't be saved outside the church or learn about the Bible outside the church, but we are commanded to meet together for specific reasons. It is not just, and I've talked about this in, in Ephesians uh, 3 when he talks about when the church meets together, we are actually teaching the angels. We are teaching uh, the spiritual powers above us because we now have the living God living within us, and they don't. They don't understand the ideas about redemption and salvation and the things that Christ has done for us. But we now have been given the mind of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 2. So 
How do we receive this corporate washing? By the preaching of the word. This is why it's so important that churches themselves continually stay within the word, because the minute that you start going outside of the word, deciding to meet for other reasons, even if they're, you know, social reasons, if they're good reasons, they might be nice things. But if the word of God is not involved in the meeting and the assembling together, then you can't receive that washing, your sanctification uh, is put in on a halt. You can't you can't continually move forward in your spiritual maturation if you're meeting together and not meeting together and being fed and washed by the Word of God. So we have baptism is number one. We have the Word of God is number two. The third one, we have the assembling together. Um, now we we, we go to uh, if, uh, Hebrews ten and. Uh, the writer of Hebrews here is talking about the fact that we have the ability to go before the throne of God into the Holy of Holies due to the fact that we are in Christ. The blood of Jesus has dedicated this new way for us to live, a completely different way. And because of that, there is this washing uh, of the conscience that then drives us to meet together. It drives us to try and provoke each other to do good works and to love. So this is what he says in Hebrews 10. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us, that is dedicated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. So we're talking about meeting in the house of God. It says this, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. So again, what is in view with regards to sanctification? What is that day approaching? That is that day of glorification, the day that we are able to see Christ and be as he is. So so just like um, justification always has in view sanctification, you don't just say, I accept Christ, Christ has put me into this position, now I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. That's not, that's not appropriate at all, that is not biblical at all. We are justified in order to start in our sanctification into living a Christ-like life. And that sanctification that we go through always has in view the glorification that is to come. So all three are this process that's going on. There is, uh, and I've talked about this before, the idea of us being saved, us in the process of being saved, and us being saved in the future. We are closer to our salvation than we were before. Uh, So I've talked about all of those things in the verses, but here... This idea of drawing near to God is found in us corporately meeting together, right? So we're meeting together uh, in order for us to be washed purely, in order for us to have our consciences cleansed, because within the church structure, uh, we don't just find where the sacraments are administered, we don't just find where the Word is preached, we also find each other holding us accountable, uh, we also find each other as being examples for each other so that we can imitate one another. Like we are called to imitate Paul, we're called to imitate uh, other people within the faith in Scripture. You can't do that if you're sitting at home all the time, right? There isn't a real type of spirituality that you can develop uh, sitting in your room, you know, just going to your work every day. 
you are part of the body of Christ. The body of, a body cannot function with different parts of it all over the place. It needs to meet together as one. It needs to corporately worship. It needs to corporately preach the word. It needs to corporately administer the sacraments. And we need to realize that this is the dedicated way that Christ has opened up for us. In John 17, uh, he's, he's giving this prayer, John 17, 19 through 21, and he's giving this prayer to the Father of intercession, and he says that he doesn't uh, want them to leave the world. He wants them to remain in the world and that he wants the people that he's praying to, not just for the apostles, but those who would believe due to what the apostles would preach, which is the whole of the rest of the church, that they would be one as he and the Father are one. Now, he and the Father are one in terms of essence. That is how he wants us to be as Christians. I think that's something we're failing in, to, to be quite honest. Um, but we are failing in that. But God wants us to be one in essence with each other, all right? Not just meeting in the same place, but spiritually in, uh, of the same essence as He and the Father are because the Holy Spirit, the third part of that Trinity, that triune God, dwells within us. The same Spirit that rose Him from the dead is the same one that dwells within us. So we have that power as well, and we are knit together in that way. And so He calls us to meet together and that is a type of a cleansing of our conscience, uh, a washing, if you will. So now we have the fourth. So we have the baptism, we have circumcision, we have assembling together. The fourth one, we have confession. Now, I'm not talking about um, the idea of confession where you, you go to a priest and, and uh, you confess your sins. You can do that if you want. Um, that the, We don't really hold to that. Um, priests can't forgive you of your sins. But there are some who believe that due to the, the idea of the keys being given to the apostles and apostolic succession and stuff like that. Um, but that's for another video. Uh, when I'm talking about the confession, I'm talking about simply from uh, what John says in First John here. And then there's another corporate type of confession in James that I'll talk about. But it says this in First John 1, 8 through 10. It says, if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we see that even those who are already saved, um, like we talked about baptism dealing with that which was before, it was destructive of that which was before, the sins. Uh, how do we deal with the sins post-baptism then? Well, we have to deal with them by daily praying for forgiveness, by daily confession. And that is a confession that comes before God. Now, you can read um, one of the great confessions of all time, Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Uh, but we are commanded, and Christ talks about this in Matthew 6, 18 through, uh, 8 through 15. He says that uh, daily, uh, we, we, we thank him for the uh, daily bread we're given and to forgive us our trespasses if we forgive those who trespass us. And so there's a daily need to pray and confess one's sins to God for the cleansing that we need. But there is also this corporate um, uh, confession that is for the sake of healing. Um, and, and the way that it's spoken of as a, a, a literal physical healing, this is what James says in James 5, it says, Is any sick among you? 
Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So now this is not, again, asking uh, for people themselves to give some sort of absolution of sins over you. What it's uh, saying is the people that you've sinned against when you've sinned, the reason why you may be suffering from a particular ailment may be because of that sin you committed. And he tells you to call the elders of the church, which are the, pre, the, the preachers, the pastors, uh, could be the deacons, for people to come of the church to lay their hands on him, to anoint oil upon them, and they are to confess the sins that they've committed. And if when they do that, their sins will be forgiven, and Christ also will heal them. Now, I wouldn't say that this would mean that there's some definitive healing that's going to go on, but God can do as he wills. And this is something that James instructs us to do. So there's, there's, it's in Scripture. There's no reason to ignore it. So there is this uh, individual form of confession, and then there's a uh, a corporate or, or a uh, where you're confessing to others because of the sins that you've committed against them. Uh, like he says, don't bring your gift to the temple until you sort things out with your own brother. Um, you're supposed to come out. And tell them face to face. That doesn't mean you stand before a podium or anything and have to tell everyone your sins. But the people you wrong, uh, a way to receive a cleansing is also uh, not just to ask forgiveness of Christ, but to set things right with the brother in Christ that you have, and with, and and even with the lost. All right? It's a good witness if you've done something wrong to go and and, and apologize to them, tell them that you wronged them. Um, so we want to do that because we're always trying to convert those as well, which also it says uh, the love and converting sinners will actually cover a multitude of sins. That is what James says there at the end. So that is the four cleansings of sanctification, where everything that we're doing is in view of glorification. So we go, uh, we begin the idea of conforming ourselves to the death of Christ by uh, obeying the command of Christ to be baptized. And then, of course, we're being raised up. So it's looking forward to our resurrection that is to come. The second one is circumcision, that you are uh, being a witness of... Or sorry, the second one is the word. <laughs> I'm focused on circumcision. Um, the second one is the word. We're teaching people the word in order for them to be saved, in order to share the same eternal inheritance we have. The third one is the assembling together, the creating of the family of God, the building up of the building and temple of God being knit together. And of course, the fourth one then is confession. So for, these are just four that I've picked out here. And there, you know, there's so many things in Scripture, but these four, I think, are really key to the sanctification of the believer. And if you notice, all of them deal with both the individual and the group at the same time, the individual and the church. And to not be a part of a church is something that greatly curtails your sanctification as a believer uh, and your spiritual maturation as a believer. It's something that is simply required. We, If we are going to be the whole body of Christ, we do need to meet together. So those are the four. 
the next one should be on the next video should be on Ecclesiastes. If you liked it, if you disagreed, uh, or you, or you just want to talk about the Bible or something, let me know in the comments below or subscribe if you want. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next time.